Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to have you with us today. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here. And it's Easter morning, and we're excited to celebrate that with you. And here's the cool thing about today. We're not just celebrating that online right now, but all through the day and all through the weekend, there's going to be environments. If you have kids or if you have students, for you to on-demand to create some environments in your house to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So we're really excited for that. And I love Easter because that's exactly what we get to talk about today, like we do many Sundays, the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus was the thing that drove faith down into the hearts of his disciples. And it gave his followers confidence in who he was. Now, I think we should ask a question at Easter. Um, it's a question I think we should ask throughout our lives. And you may not feel like it's a huge, important question. But for me, it's like the question we could ask. And you may not have asked this since you were a child or maybe for you since you left faith. But the question is, who is Jesus? Because this is really what it comes down to. And you need to know that his followers believed on the other side of the resurrection that he was the son of God. Now here's the cool part about this. We don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells us so. We love the Bible, but we don't think he rose from the dead just because the Bible tells us so. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because a guy named Mark took down Peter's story and Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and documented it. And Matthew, who followed Jesus, wrote a historical document of who Jesus was. And then Luke, who was an amazing physician, a brilliant man, talked to the Apostle Paul and John and Peter and Matthew. And he took all the notes about Jesus' life and he decided to write an orderly account. In fact, he says this in his gospel. Luke says, I too decided to write an orderly account, like accurate, precise, so you could hang on to it for the rest of of your life for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, I just have to say, if I have ever, have, ever have another child, which I probably won't, I'm going to name him Theophilus because it's such a most excellent name. Uh, Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Now, all these guys came together and they documented the story of Jesus. Maybe the most amazing is James, who's Jesus' brother, who didn't believe in Jesus before the resurrection, but after he saw them rise, he rise from the dead, he believed. And then James was a pastor of the big church for Jesus in Jerusalem. And ultimately, James lost his life being stoned for what he believed about his brother. Now, would you... Give up your life for your brother in the fact that he told you he was God unless you really believed it? I don't think so. But all these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and James, would probably tell you this, that the story of Jesus wasn't worth telling apart from the resurrection. That apart from the resurrection, there wasn't a lot to hang on to because when Jesus died, they all had kind of given up. All their hopes and fears came to a crashing end. And we've said this for years at Easter at Lifehouse, that in that moment, nobody expected nobody. And we've talked about this line so many times that my kids quoted around Easter and my kids' friends quoted around Easter. So Jacob Covey, this line is for you, that nobody expected nobody. And the place this gets you know, going and it takes real traction is what we talked about a week ago. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which was a miraculous sign, and it was a miraculous sign not because Lazarus had been dead for four minutes, he had been dead for four days. And Jesus calls him out of the tomb, and people were amazed, and they started to believe. In fact, this is what we're told, that many, 
many believed in him. The problem was there were too many people that believed in Jesus. And it freaked the religious leaders out. In fact, one religious leader said, listen, if this keeps up, the whole world is going to believe. And we've got to do something to stop this Jesus movement. And so they decided that they would stop the Jesus movement over the Passover festival that was just a few days away. See, the Passover festival celebrated when Moses led God's people, the Jewish people, out of Egypt. And once a year, they'd celebrate that. And on the Passover festival, Jerusalem would be packed with people that would come and be part of this. And Jesus would march into Jerusalem just a few days before. And there was so much patriotic zeal for the Jewish people that they cheered him on because what they were hoping is that he would throw off his rabbinic robes and pick up his sword and put on his crown and be the conquering king and squash Rome and set the people free. Well, Jesus marches in to Jerusalem and he teaches at the temple and preaches at the temple. And then the night before he was crucified, he gathers his closest friends, his closest followers. And he partakes in what we know as the Lord's Supper. And in that moment, he gives them a new covenant. You see, these young men were really familiar with the covenant between God and the Israelite people. But Jeremiah had talked about a new covenant that was coming. But this new covenant would come in blood of all things. And they had no idea what that meant. But this new covenant would be between all of mankind and God and a relationship would be there to have with the living God. And then Jesus begins to talk about a new command. And this new command would trump all other commands. And it was simply this, I want you to love each other and love people in this world as I have loved you. I don't want you to love people the way you want to be loved. I want you to love people as I have loved you or as I am about to show you what love looks like as Jesus marched to the cross. And I'm telling you, in that moment, he was doing something for these men. But more importantly for us today, he was doing something for you. And he was about to do something for me that would change our lives in the context of how much he loves us. When that supper, Judas slips out the side door and he goes and he betrays Jesus. And then Jesus takes the rest of the guys. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he says that incredible prayer, Father, not my will, because my will is I don't want to go to the cross and suffer as much as I have to, but your will be done, Father. And then Judas shows up with the temple guard. He kisses Jesus on the cheek because that was the sign that this is the guy you're supposed to capture. And they scoop Jesus up and they take him in. They beat him. They falsely accused him. They try him. And now he's in a world of hurt. This is the place where Peter, he denies knowing Jesus at all. So there's another fail on top of Jesus. And all of his followers, they begin to scatter because they're terrified. They hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate the Roman governor in Jerusalem, where Pilate, he interviews Jesus and talks to him, and he can't find anything wrong, but the Jewish people want something to happen to this leader that they think is undermining what they wanted. And so Pilate decides this, let's just have him scourged. And scourging was such a brutal act where literally the flesh was removed from a man's back all the way down to the bone, and when that was finished, Pilate brings Jesus out. And he says, is this enough? Is this enough? And they're going, no, we want him dead. And to the point where you may recognize that really famous story where there's Jesus and Barabbas standing shoulder to shoulder. Barabbas was a known criminal. Jesus was a man that Pilate said was innocent. What shall I do with Barabbas? And he's like, free Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What should I do with Jesus? And that awful cry of crucify him, 
crucify him. And then what pushed Pilate over the edge is they begin to say, hey, Jesus has called himself a king. And if Jesus is a king and Caesar's our king, you've got to decide, Pilate, which one you're going to go with because if you go against Caesar, you're dead. You're over. The Roman world will kill you. And in that moment, Pilate decided, that's enough. And this is what John, who documented this story, says. Finally, Pilate, after this, handed him over to him to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull. There, they crucified him. Now, there's not a lot of detail in this because I'm sure John thought, I don't need to give a lot of detail. Because in the first century, all the readers that had ever been around a crucifixion heard it, smelled it, would know exactly what happened, how agonizing and painful it was. Detail is not needed here. And with him, two others, one on each side of Jesus in the middle. So Jesus is crucified on a cross between two thieves. And if you read the whole text, he looks down at John, who's writing this, and John must have been fairly close. He said, John, John, take care of my mama who's standing right next to you. And Mary, just treat John like he's your son. John, I need you to take care of my mama. In this most desperate moment, Jesus is still thinking about his mom. And after agonizing hours and saying some really important things, Jesus said, it is finished. And John tells us, standing there that day, he saw that with that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And all hope was lost. But then John writes something to you and to I on the other side of the cross, reflecting back as an old man in light of all this. Something that you could skip over really easily, but it's worth paying a little attention to. John says, the man, talking about himself, who saw it has given his testimony, and his testimony is true. Guys, I, I was there. I saw it. you got to know that what I said is true. And he knows, talking about himself, that he tells the truth. And he testifies so that, and this is a so that moment, so that you may also believe. John would say, I want you to believe what I saw so you can have the same belief I did. Now, here's the thing. Almost everybody believes this story of Jesus up to this point. And maybe if you're not a person of faith, you would say, okay, I can believe that. I believe that Jesus was a person. He was a great teacher. He was compassionate. He cared for people no one else cared for. And I can even get on the train that Jesus died for people he cared about. I mean, I wouldn't do that, but hey, anybody can die on a cross. Anybody can do that thing. So I believe that, to which John would say, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you believe that. But it's the next part. I want you to believe. So John, why don't you just tell us what happened next? Glad you asked, John would say. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And he asked for the body of Jesus because they couldn't legally bury a person that had been crucified. So most likely, Joseph paid Pilate off. He bribed him. Because Roman law said a crucified person can't be put in a proper burial site. They loved to leave those bodies on the cross until they withered up into almost nothing and the birds picked the rest clean. So most likely, there was a bribe that happened. And with Pilate's permission, he came and he took away the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And do you know why he brought all this? Because he was convinced that Jesus was dead and he was gone. Taking Jesus' body, 
The two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And this is an interesting little detail. I think if you ask John, why did you explain all this? He would say, because we were Jewish men and this is the way we did it. And my readers in the future, I realize they may not be Jewish. And I just wanted them to understand how convinced we were Jesus was gone. At the place, we're told, where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And the reason they're in such a hurry is because the Sabbath is coming, and the Jewish law said you can't mess with, touch, or prepare a dead body on the Sabbath. So they did this as fast as they could, They came out of the tomb, probably had their servants roll the stone in place, wedge it, cement it so it couldn't be moved, and they went home, and they went home with broken hearts, and all their expectations had been shattered. What you need to know about Jesus' other followers is that when Jesus died, they all scattered too. What we know is um, Peter and John went to the city in Jerusalem, and they hid. Now, we're not sure what they did that night, if they even talked to each other, if they ate any food. We probably didn't sleep. Maybe they drank some just to try and take the edge off. We don't know. But we know this the next morning. There was a thunderous rapping on the door. And maybe they thought the Roman soldiers are here, but then they realized it can't be Roman soldiers because Roman soldiers don't knock. Roman soldiers kick your door in. They come in, they drag you out in the street, and they cave your head in, your skull in. So it can't be Roman soldiers. They open the door, and there stands Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene was this broken woman that Jesus encountered, and she became an incredible follower of Jesus. And I think she was just so appreciative of Jesus because he decided to elevate who she was and the dignity of her and every other woman in the world and every other child in the world. Because 2,000 years ago, people believed that women and children were less than men, which is totally wrong. That kind of might makes right. And Jesus said, now everyone that is born in the image of God has the same dignity and the responsibility to be loved by all people. Well, now, here's Mary Magdalene, and she's standing at the door where Peter and John was, and she's probably disheveled. She's been sobbing, crying. She's so upset. And this is what she says, according to John, who was there. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, this is the part of the story I always step out of, and I think nobody in this story is a hero. In fact, if we go back to the line that we said earlier, that nobody expected nobody. And the reason this is so important is if you were making this up, if you were writing this story so you could sell a lot of books, start a movement, get really rich, get a big following, you would not write yourself in as a person that you know, was scared, was hiding, didn't think Jesus had risen from the dead at all. You would do it totally different. I wasn't going to go through this whole thing, but every year I love to find an angle that I would have done if I was making this story up. And so what I would have decided for this year is that you know, on Sunday morning, when it was still dark, I would have walked out in the streets of Jerusalem. Even though there was a pandemic and Rome said, if you go on the streets and lock down, you're going to be killed. I decided my faith is bigger than any pandemic and I'm going to the tomb. And so I would have marched to the tomb, but no one else would have been going. See, Peter and John and those guys, they didn't believe as I believe. I had real faith. That's how I would write the story if I was making it up. And I got to the tomb, and I wish I would have had a band and some screens and a smoke machine and food trucks, but there's a pandemic on, and so all I had with me was a boombox. 
And as the sun started to come up, I took the boombox and I began to hold it over my head like John Cusack and say anything. And I played that good old Peter Gabriel song, you know, in your eyes, life, the heat, in your eyes, I am complete. And I started to count down. But just as I was counting down with the John Cusack image going, I looked over the hill and here comes Peter, James and John. And about a thousand, no, let's make it 5,000 people because we all believe, but I believe the most. And their band showed up, Guns and Roses decided they wanted to follow Jesus, and they began to play Take Me Down to Paradise City where the grass is green and the, well, it can't be, girls are pretty, I don't know how that works with Jesus. Anyway, and we started rocking out and counting down to five, four, three, Guns and Roses, wailing, slashes, talking about, I mean, it's just amazing. And Jesus walks out, and I go and I hug him, and he smacks me on the head and says, this is my favorite follower, do whatever he says, and buy his books. Woo! Now that's the story I would have made up. But no one tells that story. No one conveys that's what happened because nobody expected nobody. Everybody assumed that Jesus was dead and gone and he wasn't coming back. So John tells us, so Peter, so Peter, and the other disciple, they started for the tomb. Both are running, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first. Now, this is such a cool little interesting thing. Remember, John's dictating this most likely as an old man, and now he realizes, yeah, Peter's died. He's gone on to heaven. I might as well tell everybody, we both ran. I'm faster than Peter. I just want to let you all know. I kind of feel like John's telling us about his high school football career, which, gentlemen, no one cares about your high school football career, but he's just throwing it out there. So when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Peter, hey, did he really beat you there? Because he said he did, right? So he gets there first, and John says he, talking about himself, bent over, and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Hey, John, why didn't you go in? Well, I'll tell you why I didn't go in, because it's a tomb, man. And I was a little bit afraid to walk in the tomb. But let me tell you this part. Then Simon Peter got there, and he came along behind, and he went straight into the tomb because that's what Peter always did. He was impetuous. He talked too quickly. He acted too quickly. He always got himself in trouble, so he just barged in to that tomb. Here's what he saw. He saw strips of linen lying there as well as cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Now, this is a really important little detail because if there were people that came to rob the grave, they would have taken all the material in the grave because it was all valuable. And if they just wanted the money or the body, they would have just thrown the grave clothes everywhere. But it's like Jesus' body just disappeared and everything is just laid there nice and neatly. It's an important little detail. The clothes was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, John says, finally, the other disciple, me, he's saying, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw. Now, here's where John gives us his formula for why we should believe. That he saw, and when he saw the tomb empty, he believed. See, in that moment, John reflects back. He, he started to reframe his whole life. He started to trust in who Jesus really was. He went to that, back to that point where Philip said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus smiled and said, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. 
And maybe John at that moment kind of believed Jesus, but when Jesus died, he didn't think Jesus was the Father at all. He didn't think they were one, but in this moment, he begins to believe. In this moment, when he is not in that tomb, he starts to understand that Jesus really was the resurrection and the life. That Jesus, there was really life in him, and that you did not have to be condemned, but that your sins can be forgiven. Maybe if we would say it in our words, we'd say this, that you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven here down to us. My sin was great, and they understood this. None of them stood by Jesus' side. None of them expected Jesus to rise from the dead, even though he told them he was going to do that. Heck, he had asked Matthew, a stinking tax collector, to follow him. Peter denied him three times. I mean, you can't get more of a bigger mess than these guys were. My sin was great. But your love was greater. What could separate us now? John might say, hey, he was the word in the beginning. It's what I wrote. From the beginning, he was there. One with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory and creation now revealed in you our Christ. I saw that empty tomb and what would come the next few days and weeks, and I believed because of what I saw and what I heard and what I experienced. Now, here's what you need to know. Um, John and Peter, they went into the city to hide. The other disciples, or many other disciples, they left the city. Some went to Bethany, some went to other places, and one of them that took off was Thomas. And so Thomas hears that Jesus is popping up all over Jerusalem. The tomb's empty. He's alive. And Thomas at least wants to figure this out. And so John tells us this, that now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, when he showed up. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers in where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Period. In other words, guys, I wasted three years of my life following Jesus. And I loved him, but I, he failed. He let me down. And John and Peter, I, I appreciate what you said, but I can't just go on your word. I have been let down too much. I can't waste any more time. And again, remember, this is John telling the story who was there. Huh, what do I say next? How about this? A week later. After his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, and he's about to describe them being in a room that's sealed, that's locked, that no one can in, get into, and it's just them, maybe just the 11. And they're in there just waiting, and no one can get in, no one can barge in. I'm sure John smiled as he dictated this as an old man. Though, the doors were locked, remember I told you that? Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. I don't know how it happened, but it's like Jesus just materialized in the room. It was like a, something from Star Trek where he got beamed in. He just showed up. I don't know if he walked through the walls or what, but he was there, and he said, peace. Well, John, why do you think he said peace? Well, I'll tell you why. We were there by ourselves, and a man that we saw dead shows up, and he's alive. We about wet our pants, and so Jesus knew that. And, of course, he said, hey, peace, peace, peace. It's okay. Remember, I love you guys. I'm not here because I'm mad at you. I'm here to give you peace. I bet they never forgot that moment. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. See the holes 
and reached out your hand and put it into my side where that spear was plunged into me. Do you feel that? And then Jesus says something to Thomas. It's not a great translation or easy to translate, so it feels a little wonky when you read it in the English. But basically what he says is, hey, hey Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas, I want you to believe. And then what Thomas says next is, unbelievable for me some days. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, I believe now. I have seen you with my own eyes and touched you with my own hands. I believe. I'm not an unbelieving person anymore. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Hey, Thomas, don't let these other guys give you a nickname like Doubting Thomas. Don't let them give you that nickname because you're no worse than them. None of them believed until they saw me either, but you just saw me last, so don't let them give you a nickname. And apparently Thomas didn't listen because he got the nickname Doubting Thomas. But then Jesus, he steps out of the context of the moment And he dives into the future and he thinks about you and he thinks about me and he thinks about the generations to come. He thinks about us in 2020 on Easter morning. And he says, oh, this is not just for you guys. But blessed are those who have not seen. That's you and that's me. And yet have believed. Blessed are the ones in the world that they're not going to see me physically because I'm here for a set period of time. But they still believe because of what they hear and what they've been told and taught and read in the scriptures. Blessed are those. And some of you would say, yep, that's my story. I've never seen a physical Jesus, but I have been blessed by knowing him. To know I have forgiveness and eternal life. And my sins are forgiven because the issue was when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying for all of my sins. And I have been blessed because my sins have been paid in full and I don't owe that debt anymore. And if you don't believe, he might look at you and say, you can be blessed even though you have not seen. Because I can forgive you and give you life too. John wraps this whole thing up and he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And then he gives an invitation to you and to me. But these, but these are written that you and me, we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Life in his name. Now here's what's so fascinating. Jesus' name meant everything to his followers until he died. Then his name turned to mud. It lost value for a couple days. But when he rose from the dead, his name turned into something that was powerful and real. And again, we might say this in our own words. We might say, death could not hold you, Jesus. The veil tore before you because you silenced the boast of sin and grave. This is what his followers believed when they saw him risen from the dead. That sin doesn't hold me anymore. The grave doesn't control me. It doesn't matter what happens in our world. I am not afraid of my future. Because my future lies in the hands of my Savior who already conquered sin and the grave. The heavens are roaring and I'll bet the day that Jesus walked out of that tomb... They roared like never before and cheered like never before. The praise of your glory for you are raised to life again. 
And maybe if you could sit down with John, who wrote a lot of this down, and say, John, if you could just encapsulate one sentence of what Jesus said and what he did and what you believe about Jesus, because you were there and you know him so well, what would you, what would you say? What, what, what could you put like on a billboard or a t-shirt or a hat? Something we could all memorize that would just encapsulate who Jesus was and what he did. John might say, I'll tell you what I would say. That God so loved the world, that's you he loved, and me he loved, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God came to sacrifice everything so you and I could live forever in peace and harmony and joy and forgiveness in his son. That the name of Jesus would conquer everything that's dark and sinful and wrong with this world and we would have life in him. It's why we sing this amazing song. And the last couple lines in it are this. What, what a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name. The name of Jesus. And the invitation for you and the invitation for me is just to simply say, Jesus, you are my personal King, my personal Savior. Lord, I come with, with just so much mess and sin and darkness in me that I can't undo. But by putting my trust and believing in you, I can be forgiven today. What a beautiful name it is. It's the name of Jesus. And we want you to experience that on this Easter morning. In fact, I can't think of a better time in our lives to give our lives to God and trust Jesus than on Easter. And I'm simply going to pray, and you just need to know in your own private space, in your heart, you can simply say, Jesus, I trust you with my life, and I accept you as the Savior of my life. And I have confidence, like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the Apostle Paul did. They had confidence that they were children of God. So if you just simply pray with me, and if today's your day to put your trust in Jesus, you can simply say this, Jesus, here's my life. I trust what you did on the cross as payment for all of my sin. And the fact that you rose from the dead, Jesus, just gives incredible validity and trust in my life that you are the Son of God, the Messiah. Take my life, take my future, take all that I am and use it for your good glory. And Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the story John brought to us. And I pray that we could have faith. And the people that are still asking questions and still not sure, they could keep asking their questions, but walk towards you. And thank you for rising from the dead that we would know that sin in the grave has no hold on us anymore. And the beautiful name of Jesus is the name we trust in. In your name I pray.